We're continuing in the Gospel of Matthew. This morning, it's been a little while since since we've been there, but we will bring Matthew to a close. Uh, not Matthew to a close. We'll be, bring Matthew to a 19 to a close. The Gospel of Matthew. This is the 119th sermon in Matthew, so... As I've kind of sketched things out, that's always subject to change, but as I've sketched things out, we'll finish sometime in September. So, you know, but that's not a verse at a time. That's just kind of a section at a time. Uh, as Matthew opens, the, the crucifixion of Jesus is just a short time away, perhaps a couple of weeks. Matthew 19 contains what we've been seeing Matthew 20 opens with the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Jesus, in verse 17 of chapter 20, is just about to go up to Jerusalem, and he explains that he will die and be raised from the dead. The mothers of James and John come and ask that their sons would be promoted, and then Jesus leaves Jericho for Jerusalem and heals two blind men, and chapter 21 is the triumphant entry. So the words that we're reading are coming at the the very end of Jesus' public ministry. He's just about over. His disciples have been with him for the better part of two years. In order to get the context, let's begin in verse 16. And behold, someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms, for my name's sake, will receive one hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. When, when Peter speaks up in verse 27, he and the others have been with Jesus two, two and a half years. The Gospels don't open with Jesus picking his disciples. It could have been a couple of months after his baptism before he, he chose them. But nevertheless, they've been with him the bulk of this time. 
Uh, Jesus' popularity has waxed and waned from time to time. He was followed by huge multitudes at periods. John 6 uh, shows that at least at one point, virtually everybody traipsing after him stopped. So many that he turned to the 12 and said, are you going to? And Peter said, no, where else would we go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. I love that Peter didn't say, no, we understand everything you're saying. He just said, we trust you. These men have stuck it out through that time. Jesus has been opposed sometimes violently by the religious leaders. Those men, these 12, had remained faithful to him in spite of that opposition. That's remarkable. They knew who they were. Later on in the book of Acts, when Peter and John are arrested, it says that the leaders recognized that they had been with Jesus. I don't think that there was some mystery where they recognized by their words or they gave off an aura. I think that they said, I know you. I've seen you with him. And these 12 disciples stuck it out. Their commitment to him was all but assured as far as they were concerned. They had established himself as disciples with a capital D. The Jesus conversation with the rich young ruler gets them thinking. At the end of that conversation, you know, he talked with them about salvation and the nature of salvation. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, not because God is opposed to the rich, but because those who are rich seem to have no needs. Well, at the time, it was assumed that those who were rich had been uniquely blessed by God. And the disciples say, well, if if those whom God has blessed barely make it in, what hope is there for the rest of us? And Jesus doesn't answer with a, a social answer. He doesn't say, oh, God is on the favor of the poor and downtrodden. He says it's impossible. It's impossible for anybody to be saved. But with God, all things are possible. The God saves all kinds of people. With that, then, Peter asks this question. We've left everything and followed you. We did what you wanted the rich young ruler to do. We did that. You promised him treasure in heaven. What do we get? Well, they had left work behind. Peter and, J- Peter and Andrew and James and John were fishermen. They left their boats. James and John actually left their father in the boat to deal with the nets and the, t- and the catch that day. Levi left the, the tax booth. Matthew left the tax booth. There's no indication any of those men ever went back. Now, after the resurrection, Peter said, at one point, I'm going fishing. But that was a single moment. That was a single day. He didn't return to that as a livelihood. They'd all left friends behind. They knew men in the villages, people that they had grown up with. At those moments, those men are back in Capernaum and Bethsaida and the other villages that they were from, carrying on with their lives. They're working and they're with their families. And the disciples have have been, have removed themselves from that for a lengthy time. They left family behind. We know from Matthew 8 that Peter was married. He had a mother-in-law. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is talking about his right as an apostle to make a living from the gospel, and, and his point there was that when he went into a new area to evangelize, he didn't charge them to hear the gospel. But he makes reference to the other apostles. He says, 
Uh, do we not have the authority to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles? And the brothers of the Lord, meaning James and Jude and Peter. So if not at this point, certainly in the future, these men would be married. They would have families. Now, they didn't abandon their families. We see that. They took them along. But they did leave unbelieving friends behind. None of them returned to their daily work. They'd left much. So Peter's not exaggerating. Now, the majority of Christians in our time give up very little to follow Christ, but we're, we're called to the same attitude. We're called to the same attitude. Trusting and following Jesus means that our first and highest loyalty is to him, not to ourselves, not to our friends, not to our family. Right after I was saved as a, as a high school student, I was at a concert and a, a girl turned to me as the gospel was being presented and she says, wait, does this mean that if I'm a Christian, I go to heaven, but if my parents aren't, they go to hell? And I said, yeah, I, I, did, I knew nothing. I mean, I knew I was a brand new Christian just a few months. And I said, yeah, that's pretty much what he's saying. And she got up and said, if they're not going to heaven, I'm not going to heaven either. But she refused to leave anything behind. But those who truly trust and follow Jesus in our time realistically lose more than they gain in this world. And the losing certainly was not over for the disciples. In about two weeks, maybe three weeks, I'm not sure of the exact time frame, but, but within a very short amount of time, Judas would reveal himself as the betrayer. But that night when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they all said, is it me? They had no suspicions of him. So at the point that Peter asks this question, Leaving everything behind is not done. They're going to lose a man who has become a brother because he's going to show himself to have been false from the very beginning. At any time, the Lord can move us on. Friends or family might decide that our commitment to Christ is unwelcome. Christian brothers and sisters might make other decisions. We might reach points of disagreement and they, they abandon us is how it feels. And certainly false converts always at some point abandon Christ, and in abandoning Christ, they abandon us. He knows who are his. That's the promise. The Lord knows who are his, but we don't. We take each other largely at face value. There's not one of us who know the Lord have not had our hearts broken by somebody who turned out to be false. So Peter's question is a good one. We've done what the rich young man, uh, what you wanted the rich young man to do, you promised him treasure in heaven. What does that mean for us? Now, I want you to notice Jesus doesn't rebuke that question as worldly or materialistic. He doesn't say, you're thinking about this all wrong. That shouldn't be your focus. It's a reasonable question. We who follow Christ leave behind things that we can see and touch and experience in favor of things that are as yet invisible and unknown. So what's on the other side? It's a reasonable question. This is Jesus' answer to the disciples. Verse 28, 
Truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit on, uh, upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a promise made to the disciples, though not to Judas Iscariot. There's a time coming. Jesus calls it the regeneration when he will take his glorious throne. So I, I begin with a question to your heart and mind. Do you believe that Jesus will truly sit on a glorious throne? If you believe Jesus will truly sit on a glorious throne, then you must believe that his 12 disciples will sit upon 12 thrones. And they, they will do that to judge or, or rule the 12 tribes of Israel. The word judging there is in a present tense. They won't sit in, in kind of a spiritual judgment of the works of Israel, as in final judgment, only Jesus does that. The word judging here is like the word judging from the Old Testament book of Judges, where the judges were actually rulers. I believe that this is going to take place during the Millennial Kingdom. I believe that there will be a seven-year tribulation period when God will systematically judge the earth and restore Israel to faithfulness, and at the end of that time, Jesus will return. I believe Satan will be bound. It's, it's interesting, by the way, as I've been reading lately about postmillennialism, which believes that Jesus returns at the end of the millennium, and amillennialism, which believes that the, the, the idea of a millennium is figurative and not literal. Neither one deal with the binding of Satan. It's like, but we're promised he will be bound for a thousand years and then released. I'm not sure I want to look at our time today and say Satan is bound. But during that time of the millennium, nations will exist because people will continue to be born into mortal life, perhaps not the nations that exist today. I don't know if the Lord will return this afternoon or in a thousand years. No one can say. The glorified saints will have the responsibility of administering, uh, administrating Jesus' authority on the earth as we reign with him as kings and priests. And his 12 disciples will specifically have responsibility over Israel. What will there be for us? What will there be for us, Peter wants to know. And Jesus tells him. Now, again, there, there are some theological views. Let me just kind of say this parenthetically. There are some theological views that would take this as a figurative thing and not a literal thing. Um, as a rule of thumb, we take this, the text of Scripture literally unless there's a reason to take it figuratively. When the Lord says, I will shelter you under the shadow of my wings, he's, he's not a chicken. And so we understand that that's a, a picture a figurative picture of his protection. There's no reason to treat this promise to the disciples as anything but literal, unless you've already decided that it's not literal. If you've already decided it's not literal, that's probably eisegesis, not exegesis. Exegesis, I, I know this is maybe more than you want to know, but it makes me feel, it's like giving your kids vegetables. It just makes me feel better. Exegesis, 
Exegesis is the exposition or explanation of a text. This is from, by the way, this is from Got Questions, Bible Questions Answered. It's just a great definition. Exegesis is the exposition or explanation of a text based on a careful, objective analysis. The word exegesis literally means to lead out of. That means the interpreter is led to his conclusions by following the text. Eisegesis is the opposite. It's the interpretation of a passage based upon a subjective, non-analytical reading. The word eisegesis literally means to lead into, which means the interpreter injects his own ideas into the text, making them mean whatever he wants. So my way of putting it is that exegesis is the method that guarantees as much as possible that we understand what God said. Eisegesis is the method that guarantees that the Bible will always agree with us. Because we begin with our ideas, and then we search for our ideas. There's nothing in the text to suggest that Jesus is being figurative. If Jesus himself will sit on a literal glorious throne, to say that his throne is literal, but his disciples' thrones are figurative makes no sense. We're switching back and forth so quickly without any reason. It just doesn't make sense. So the disciples are are in a position of significant honor. They've been honored to be given by the Father to the Son. They've been honored to be chosen by the Son to be his disciples. They were honored to be chosen by the Son to lead the early church and to bring about some of them, at least to bring about the scriptures. And that high status in the kingdom continues in the millennial kingdom when they're given a position of privilege over Israel, not to dominate, but to serve and to lead Jesus then goes on to speak uh, to all Christians in verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive 100 times as much and will inherit eternal life. So he speaks to everyone who suffers the loss of earthly things and relationships in order to follow Christ. Following Jesus was costly to these men. It was costly to people like Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It was costly to Mary Magdalene. It was costly to the Ethiopian eunuch and the Philippian jailer. And it continues to be costly for believers all the way to today. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 speaks of those who were tortured and lost their lives, but there are other kinds of losses as well. Following Christ can lead to the loss of a livelihood or a home. It can cost relationships with family and with friends. I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, but most believers lose relationships with unbelieving family and friends. Our commitment to Christ makes us unwelcome and unacceptable, and they barely tolerate us. And the truth is that with some of us, with at least some family and friends, if we maintain an open, clear testimony for Christ, they will cut us off. And we, we learn to, to temper things. Sometimes we follow Christ to our financial cost. We could have made a better living doing something else, perhaps by being unethical in our dealings with others. Some lose their physical health and sacrifice themselves on the mission field. Some suffer emotionally because of the abandonment of friends and family and uh, the abuse that they receive. 
sometimes from people they respect, and even brothers and sisters in Christ can break our hearts. Some of them are false converts. When they abandon Christ, they abandon us as well. But we take, we, we take one another at face value. We just have this relationship. We don't expect it. We don't see it coming. And when they walk away from the Lord, it, it just takes us by complete surprise. Others are genuine believers, but they make worldly choices and forsake us. That's not too strong a word. If you've been a Christian for it, not too long, perhaps, there are times that you feel forsaken by good friends. Nothing in this life is yours forever. Nothing. Fortunes are lost every day. Our physical health, our mental health are frail. Relationships are often like eggshells. Family relationships are uncertain. Our pets die. Think about the amount of energy we spend trying to maintain what we have so that we don't throw it away today, we throw it away a year from now. I'm old enough to remember that people used refrigerators that were 30 years old or stoves that were 30 or 40 years old. You can't do that anymore. You've got to replace things. But heavenly things are eternal. So the Apostle Peter writes in the first chapter of his book, of his first letter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance. And now he gives us four descriptions of this inheritance. It is incorruptible. It is undefiled. It is unfading. And it is kept in heaven for you. Incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. That means it won't rot, it won't rust, it won't recede, and it won't be robbed. What we have in heaven is safe. Treasure in heaven. It's safe. It can't be lost. Jesus says that what we lose in this world is going to be restored many times over. which is a blessing beyond our ability to grasp. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 1 says. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and the mind has not imagined. The heart has not imagined what God has in store. So what's, what's awaiting you? Something that is incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, preserved, beyond anything you can see, beyond anything you've ever heard about or can imagine. But Jesus says, going on, that things will be upended. Earthly things will be upended. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. I, I don't think, given the context, I don't think that Jesus is speaking of the entire human race. And saying the rich and the powerful are, are going to be overthrown and the weak and the poor are going to be exalted. I think he's continuing now to speak of his, his people, of the church. There are people within the church who have a place of prominence. 
And we look at those, especially in our time where we're so fascinated with celebrity. And we think, oh, to be like him. See, I want to wake up one day with the voice of James Earl Jones and the heart of John Piper and the theology of John MacArthur. If I could have all three of those. But we look at those people and we say they're big, they're famous, they write books, they're all this. And it's very easy to make the assumption that spiritually they're ahead. The rewards that the Lord brings are based on faith, endurance, and obedience. Faith, endurance, and obedience. Not some measure of earthly success. In the end, churches are not rewarded. Parachurch ministries are not rewarded. Movements are not rewarded. Individual believers are rewarded, and we're rewarded on the basis of faith, endurance, and obedience. Which means you and I stand on on even ground with John Piper, with John MacArthur. Their ministries, their fame, their celebrity, their influence gives them no advantage. And in fact, what scripture says is that the, the more power you have, the more authority you have, the greater the judgment. Not the less. So the question is not, from an earthly point of view, what did you accomplish? The question is, did you believe? Did you endure? Did you obey? None of that's perfect. We know that. And so on the day that rewards are given, Jesus says in verse 30, I think, there's going to be some surprises. There's going to be faithful, enduring, obedient saints who nobody knew about except a handful around them. They led what Paul calls in 1 Timothy to tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. He wrote the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4. These these are the people who, who minded their own business. They kept themselves occupied in faithful, wholesome ways. And on the basis of their faith and their endurance and their obedience, the Lord will reward them. On the other hand, there's going to be those who who were out front all of the time. And boy, if you're going to pray for anything for me, pray that none of these things apply to me. They love to be first. They think more highly of themselves than is proper. They're motivated by selfish ambition and a vain desire for glory, mostly concerned with their own interests. They proclaim Christ out of selfish motives. They might even be hostile to Christians who oppose them. That's from Romans 12, Philippians 2, Philippians 1, and 3 John 1, Galatians 4. Those are descriptions biblically. We're not being told that these people are not Christians. We're being told that being fleshly as we all are, dealing with our sinful flesh as we all do, the power goes to your head. And those who are first will be last. Because so many of them are are measuring their success by earthly things. There's a pastor I read about this week, megachurch pastor, multi-campus. On average, he has 39,000 attenders Every week. 
our, our love of celebrity or the love of celebrity of many would look at that and say, there's somebody who's getting a lot of rewards, but not necessarily. What does it take to keep 39,000 people coming? Jesus says that earthly experience, experiences and appearances don't determine heavenly outcomes. Earthly experiences and appearances don't determine heavenly outcomes. So many who are first on earth will be last in heaven. Many who are last in, on earth will be first in heaven. And, and perhaps what he's saying with that is to his disciples, you are my apostles, that's a unique place. You're going to lead the church, that's a unique place. You're going to rule over Israel, that's a unique place, but don't let it go to your head. You have that by my grace, not because you're better by some measure. So as we bring this home, regarding the disciples and their role in, in ruling over Israel in the future, all I can say is, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let, let, let's get that started as quickly as we can. One day the will of God is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven, and for that we should rejoice. But frankly, I don't look at that and see a personal point of application. But his promise to restore what we lose as we follow him is precious indeed. Now, most of us would say, hopefully all of us would say, we don't follow Christ for the rewards. But the reality is, is that he promises us rewards. We didn't go to him and say, by the way, what do you have for us? And the Father and the Son and the Spirit got together and thought, well, okay, it's kind of lame, but we'll go ahead and reward him. This was his idea. This was his idea. He promises us eternal rewards. It's not greedy or selfish to recognize that fact. If there's a problem with thinking about eternal rewards, in fact, it's probably that our thinking about those rewards is too small. And we tend to say, I've lost friends as a Christian, and so I'll have all the friends that I need in heaven. When what's been promised is beyond what we've ever seen, what we've ever heard, or what we can imagine. It's better than we can possibly comprehend. But we have to leave that in his hands. Our goal then is to simply remain faithful, faithful, continue to believe, to endure, even when it's hard. And it gets hard indeed sometimes. And to be obedient as the Spirit gives us strength, as the Word speaks to us, as our own conscience recognizes what we should do or what we shouldn't do. We take the failures to him and we confess them. We take the successes to him and we give them thanks. And we press on to the next day. And we trust in the inheritance to come because of our Savior. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that we are not making a blind leap into some imaginary future. At the same time, we thank you that we don't know and can't know what it is you have for us. We just want to acknowledge with Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 that it's beyond anything we can imagine 
or anything that we've experienced on earth. In the meantime, some of us suffer loss, and we feel those losses deeply. And sometimes those losses bring us to the breaking point. I love the fact that you're tender, that you don't break bruised reeds and you don't quench smoking flax. You bring strength and you bring healing and allow us to continue to press on. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. We lift up those who are not with us and ask for your blessing to be upon them today. Remind them of your love and your goodness. And we look forward to gathering with you daily. And in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.